0: By way of introduction, we, we have to understand why we need to discuss this very issue of the scriptures now perhaps more than ever. And that is because now more than ever, we have more access, more, more accessibility, more information than ever. We have the internet, and we have Wikipedia, and we have search engines, and we have social media, which gives us news that matters and news that doesn't matter at all, more than ever and faster than ever. And we even have artificial intelligence that can do all kinds of things for us. You can talk to Siri. Siri, order me a sandwich. Siri, get me an Uber. Siri, help me understand this issue. You can even ask Siri, Siri, how can I be saved? And Siri will give you an answer. Now granted, I tried that once, and the answer will send you to hell. (laughs) Nevertheless, (laughs) Siri can give you an answer. And so you have artificial intelligence that can give answers and approximate written communication. And it can make images. We have more access now than ever. And there is more information flooding out there and being compiled more than ever. And that gives us a sense of confidence. But before we get too down this road, it is worth understanding this. Information doesn't mean knowledge. Information does not mean knowledge. Sometimes seminarians ask me, Abner, without Logos Bible software, how could all the ancient people operate? Now you have to understand, Spurgeon's predecessor was a gentleman named John Gill. And John Gill has written a free commentary online, an amazing tome of work, And he wrote it off the top of his head. When you read it and he's citing rabbis and he's citing linguistic statistics, he's doing that from his head, from going by hand and knowing the scriptures. And so I tell the seminarian, you think you're so fancy because you've got a computer that has Logos Bible software and you wonder how the ancients ever could be as smart as you. Look, the ancients were Logos Bible software. We need this box that's on this podium right now to help us operate because our mind isn't good enough to contain all that is actually relevant and knowledgeable and truthful and, and full of facts and data. Back then, people could. Information does not mean knowledge. It doesn't mean knowledge. In fact, the fact that we have to have something else to refer to all the time means you don't know. You and I don't know. So let's not confuse information with knowledge. And intelligence does not mean wisdom. Intelligence doesn't mean wisdom. Sometimes we think, oh, look at this. We, we've, got, we've got all kinds of abilities and we've got all kinds of facts. That doesn't actually mean you're smart. It just means you can say a lot of stuff. Sometimes, though, those kinds of people are called hotheads and long-winded. It doesn't mean that you're actually wise and discerning when you can just have a lot of intelligence, a lot of facts and data points that you can assemble. And in fact, everything starts to become artificial. We say, look at what we can do. We can create virtual reality. Now, just think about that for a second. You can create something fake. That's what we just said. It's virtual reality. We never created reality. That's what we have. God made that. All we can do is create the fake version. Likewise, people say, whoa, what do we have here? We have artificial intelligence. You do realize that in the word artificial intelligence is the word artificial which means fake. No one goes around and says, look at my fake watch. Look at my fake products. Look at fake, 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 fake. That's not commendable. And yet we treat it as if it is. We treat it as if it is so, so very amazing and so noble. And so as we get into this subject Here's kind of the ironic dilemma that we are in. On the one hand, we have done so many things, and I'm not knocking scientists and engineers and all those who work in these industries to produce really just amazing things. We must recognize it so, but they are limited. They are limited. They do have qualifications, severe qualifications, even self-recognized and self-imposed qualifications. And on the one hand, even though that's all true, both the amazing things and their qualifications, we still, on the other hand, are so overconfident in ourselves. We believe that we have developed everything, we know everything, we can figure anything out, and we have it all together. And that's why sometimes we wonder, do we really need a Bible? do we really need a bible if you can google that if you can ask siri that if you can go online and figure that out if man can do all these supposedly astounding feats and accomplishment why do you need a bible and part of our heart's resistance and apathy toward the scripture is this we're no longer desperate for the scripture we don't believe we need the scripture We don't feel the weight of our dependence on Scripture because we honestly feel we're self-made people. That's who we are. And so more than ever now, what we need to do is to recover the uniqueness of Scripture. We need to come back to this book and understand there is no book like this book. And if you think what you know And what you can figure out and what you can discern and what you can understand is anywhere near this book, you are totally wrong. You don't understand anything. In fact, you can't understand things truly apart from the Word of God. We need to recover that there is no book like God's book. That's what we need to understand. And the question becomes... In proving that and in demonstrating that, that the scripture is like no other, it is independent, it is autonomous, it is above and categorically above all the rest, everything depends on it and it depends on nothing. How do you demonstrate that without actually compromising the very goal that you have? Let me put it this way. If you say, well, look at archaeology, that proves, key word, the Bible, well, now the Bible depends on archaeology, does it not? And if you said, oh, look at science, it proves the Bible, then the Bible depends upon science, does it not? And if you're trying to then demonstrate, and if your objective is to say there is no book like this book, it's categorically above all the rest, everything stems from it. It stems from nothing. You can't have it in these dependent relationships on anything. So how do you prove the goal that there is no book like this book, it is the one book that rules them all, without actually undermining the very goal? And the answer is this. What we need to demonstrate all the time is that the Bible is self-authenticating. The Bible is self-authenticating. It sets forth the concepts. It declares forth its definitions. It decrees its truthfulness in such a way that everything and everyone must borrow from it to make sense of things, and they borrow from it imperfectly, which is very obvious, as we will see And because then the Bible just keeps asserting, here's the truth, here's reality, and everyone must borrow from it and derive from it and try to imitate it, then you have one that is original, and you have one that are all faulty imitations, and therefore the one that is original is the one that is autonomous, the one that is independent, and the one that rules over them all. That is is what we must do over and over and over and over again. And so what I'd like to do this morning is walk through the doctrines of Scripture and not just lay them out as the Bible lays them out, amen and amen, but to also then show that world religions and other ideologies and philosophies all try to wrestle with the same thing and they can never get it right and they can never get the results that you need and and that's all because they are... Imperfectly deriving from the Scripture, only Scripture sets forth perfect definitions. And as such, then, it is the only perfect book. It is the original. It is the autonomous one. It is the culmination of everything. And based on that, then we know what we have in our hands. And we need to treasure this. We need to to study it. And we need to be amazed by it and understand its weight. For the rest of our lives. So, this is about how the Bible defines itself. And there is nothing more powerful and hopefully more renewing than that. And that is my prayer for our time together. Let's start with the first doctrine of Scripture. So foundational. And that is this that the Scripture is divine revelation, divine revelation. And let me help us understand this doctrine. This doctrine doesn't just say that the scripture comes from God. Amen. Lots of doctrines will say that or intersect on that theme. But this doctrine reminds us of this. Revelation is something that is revealed. Something you don't know and you need to know. But you have no way of getting it unless God tells you. That is the nature of revelation. Scripture is the truth. You need to know, but you can never know on your own. Therefore, God must tell you. That is the definition of revelation. And that is a very foundational doctrine, especially in this culture and in this society, which believes we know it all. We know it all. And the book, <clears throat> at least one of many, but really foundationally, that provides this doctrine, and articulates and argues for this doctrine, is the book of Job. It is the book of Job. The book of Job is arguably the first book of Scripture, and there's a lot of proofs For why that is, the Hebrew style is ancient. The vocabulary is old. The use of currency is only found during the time of the patriarchs. It seems to have been written contemporaneously with the events that happened therein. And if it happened during the time of the patriarchs, then it was written during the time of the patriarchs. In fact, even some would contend that it was one of Abraham's relatives that wrote this book. And we can demonstrate that if we look at Elihu later on in the book. And so there's a whole host of reasons why this book was written early. Put it in one way, when Moses was writing Genesis, though the events of Genesis happened before Job, obviously, but what book did Moses have when he was writing Genesis? And the answer is he had the book of Job. He had the book of Job. Job is the chronological first book of the Bible. And you might say, well, why does that matter, especially for this discussion, because Job, then, is the introduction to your Bible. Job is the prologue. It's like the Hobbit for Lord of the Rings. It tells you why you need a Bible. Job tells you what the Bible is all about. It tells you the major questions it's addressing. It tells you the major issues that are needing to be answered. And it tells you, fundamentally, why you even need a Bible That's a big, that's an important question if you stop and think about it. Why do I even need this book? Job tells you why. Job tells you why. And here's the sum of it all. Growing up, I used to think that Job had to have been five chapters. First two chapters, Job suffers. Job three, he has friends. They're terrible. Job four and five, God comes in and straightens everybody out. Five chapters for Job. It should be the size of the book of James. And then you actually read the thing and you say, chapter one, suffering. Yeah, I got that. Chapter two, more suffering. Yeah, I got that. Chapter three, friends. Yeah, I got that. Chapter four, more friends. Chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, all the way through 30-something, friends? Why? Is there so much stuff about these friends talking? You know, is it just... Look how much he suffered. That's part of it. But it's more to it than that. It's more to it than that. You see, the friends, they had a question. And the question was simply this. If suffering like this can happen to Job, it can happen to anybody. And How do we not know that we're next? How does God work in this world? And how is God good in this fallen world? And all of Job's friends were arguing with Job, trying to desperately figure out answers, because really, that question of, if this is going to happen to me next, it's not just a question of convenience, it's literally a question of life and death. And they all knew it. Job might have not died, but everyone around him did. So how do we not know we're next? How do we not know that this is going to happen to us? And the book of Job is the wrestling of man to try to figure out the answer. And Job's got friends, and everyone teases them, I know. And they say, look at these friends, they're so foolish. They are foolish, but they're not dumb. Job's friends are amazing scholars. They can make things rhyme. They can walk through history. They can recite facts of of science and philosophy like no other. They're even quoted positively in the New Testament because they actually got some things right even though their conclusions were absolutely wrong. And Job has three friends. One is Eliphaz. He's a historian. We respect historians. That's why we even have the History Channel. And then we got another friend, Bildad. He's a science guy. We like science. Follow the science. We talk about science all the time. Then third, so far, he's a philosopher, a theologian, a genius. We like those philosophers. We don't know what they mean and what they say, but we're impressed by them. And so you got three friends. Geniuses, all of them. Waxing eloquent. And they debate in three different rounds. The first round is about how everything works in the world, natural and supernatural. And, and Job says, you don't know anything about the supernatural, guys. What are you talking about? And they say, yeah, good point, good point, fair. We'll only talk about what is in the world. And then Job says, you don't know what's going on in the world. You're just here. And then they said, Job, you're right. We're just gonna talk about what things mean to us, and you're bad. And that's, all, and that's how it concludes. And if you trace those three rounds out, the pre moderns believe that they could talk about everything in heaven and on earth. The moderns believe they could talk about everything in the world. And the post moderns just say whatever it means to me. That's what Job's friends were. Basically, in 40 chapters or 30 something chapters, you have history, philosophy, and science throughout all the epistemological frameworks of world history, just in one short book. And no friend ever said to Job, you know, Job, I bet this is the thing. God and Satan were talking in heaven, and God declared to Satan that he was going to use you for his glory. So he did all of these things to do that. And, and I bet, you know, years to come, people are just going to use you as an example of godly suffering and and how God's plan always moves forward and that we can't see things. I don't even know if what I'm saying is true. No one ever came close to that at all. Why? Easy. Because how would you ever find that truth out? You would have to be where? In heaven. You would have to be in the throne room of God when God was having that conversation with Satan, planning out and declaring his purposes, you'd have to be there. If you weren't there, you wouldn't know. And that's God's point. Job's friends, they're brilliant. They're off the charts smarts. They're the people that you would always go to. You'd buy their books. They would have New York bestsellers, one, two, three through 10 for a long, long, long time. They They would... Totally destroy Joe Osteen and all this kind of stuff. it It would be amazing. And they would be wrong because they have no idea what's going on in heaven. The only one who knows what's going on in heaven is God. And the only way you're going to find out is if He tells you. That's the doctrine of revelation. Job's friends knew that life was on the line and they were desperate to find the answers and they pulled everything that they could as human beings reason, even in a sense projecting the entire history of human thought and philosophy in 30 chapters and they couldn't figure it out because it's simple. You can't know unless God tells you and the things that you don't know are the things that matter most. Yes, you can go on the internet and figure out a lot of stuff that comes and goes in a fleeting moment. That's why you keep going on your phone all the time. The things that last forever, you can't know unless God says so. That's what we have to understand. And that's what Job realized. Job 28, turn there in your Bibles. You see, Job understands that people are foolish, and wise in some senses. They are brilliant in some ways, and the brilliance of the ancients should even humble us today. There is a place for silver to be mined, he says in chapter 28, verse 1. And you can get iron out of the dust. You can bring an end to darkness. It's spectacular to even think about how the ancient people did mining and did excavation and did architecture such that they can bring in light where there's no light and there's no smoke from the what you would expect to stain the walls from the torches that would be lit. There's none of that. How did they do that? No one really has figured that out yet. People think that we're super advanced because we have elevators that take us up and down, ding, third floor. Job says people swing to and fro through shafts, What is swinging to and fro through a shaft called? An elevator. They had elevators back then. Job says, hey, they they put their hand to the flinty rock and overturn a mountain. In our day, how do we know we're so technologically advanced? People say, we can blow up the world ten times over. That's how we know we've got sophistication. And what does Job say? "Uh, You guys can blow up the world. We can blow up the world. We've been blowing up the world. We've been blowing up mountains. We think we're so advanced. We've just been doing what everybody's been doing all along. And on the one hand, that should humble us. On the other hand, Job says, I get it. People are smart. People are engineering. People are creative. People can do things. People can manufacture things with pragmatic benefits and overcome obstacles. That's true. But here's his question, verse 12 of chapter 28. But tell me this, where can wisdom be found? Can you find wisdom? And he realizes his friends are smart. People are smart. But they can't find wisdom. And he says this. It's not in the land of the living. That's what he says. Man does not know it. It's not, verse 13, in the land of the living. To really have wisdom. To really understand this world. To really answer the questions that matter. You have to be outside looking in, not inside looking out. How do you know that the world is not flat and that the earth rotates around the sun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? You have to be what? Outside of all of that to see the whole picture. How do you, how does it, when a young person comes to someone of, of more experience and says, I'm stressed, I can't handle this, the person's been there, done that. They can look outside looking in, they can understand what's going on because of all these things, because they have experience that puts them outside the frame of reference of the other pers- individual. How much more to understand this world and the questions that really matter, the questions that you really have to answer, the questions that are life and death, you can't just answer those if you're on the inside. You have to, The only one who can answer that is the one who's looking outside in. That's the issue. And Job says, none of us are there We can't find out wisdom. And Job says, You can't buy wisdom. You can't buy wisdom. You can see it in verse 15 and following. You can't pay for it with gold. You can't have it with precious minerals or or the gold of Ophir. It's more weighty, it has more power than that. And Job's point is, You can't find it. You can't buy it because it's too precious to be bought, it's too powerful. To buy. Wisdom is the insight you need but you can't find. Wisdom is the most powerful thing that you can't buy. And wisdom, on top of that, he concludes by saying, verse 20, from where is wisdom found? Where does wisdom come from? Can you manufacture it? Maybe, yeah, we couldn't find it and we couldn't buy it, but we can do the American thing. We can make it. And Job says, you can't do that either. It's the key to life that you can't make. It's The key to life that you can't make. And Job has proven this over and over and over with all of his friends. They weren't able to find it. They weren't able to certainly buy it. And Job had money. He was like the original Costco of the ancient Near East. He had camels and servants and everything. If someone could buy it, it was Job. Couldn't buy it. And they couldn't make it. They spent 30-something chapters trying to make wisdom, and they made nothing. And so Job says, you know what I've learned in this whole discussion? It's this. We can't do it. Wisdom's outside of us. Wisdom's too powerful for us. Wisdom cannot be produced by man. And he says, verse 23, God. That's all you need to know. God. God discerned its way. He knows its place. Why? Because." He gazes to the ends of the earth. What did we say? You have to be on the outside looking in. And where is God? On the outside, what? Looking in. He's the only one who knows. And so Job says, here's what I've learned, guys, friends. Verse 28, Job 28, 28, such an important verse. Then God said to man, behold, The fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Have you heard that phrase before? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And you say, oh, yeah, Solomon said it. Proverbs. I've read my Bible. Amen. Good. It's just that you forget that Solomon's actually quoting from who? Job. Have you ever wondered why the fear of Yahweh leads to wisdom? Have you ever wondered why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? How does that work? You know it does. You know it's true. You just don't know why. Job is the backstory that tells you why. And it's so, so simple. When you fear God, really when you fear anything, have you noticed that negotiations stop? How do you know your children are really afraid? They stop talking back. The more they talk, you know they don't fear you. That's why you have to get fearsome as a, as a parent. But when they stop talking back, now they've got the fear. When we fear Yahweh, we stop talking. We stop arguing back. We stop trying to inject our own commentary and comments into God's declaration. And when you're like that, For the first time, you become wise. Why? Because you actually listen to the one who knows what he's talking about. We don't know. Job's friends have no clue. And what we have to understand with the doctrine of Revelation is it's this. You have to be 100% confident that you don't know. That you haven't figured it out. That you have no idea about the most important things in life. Sure, you want to know a little bit about mining? You can find it. You want a little bit about different miscellaneous topics? Sure, you can discover it. But on the most important things, the issues of actual life and death and the truth and what this world really is and who God is, you have to be 100% confident. I know, I do not know. And there is only one who can tell me, and that is only by revelation. And I will never figure it out on my own. I can never figure it out on my own because the only one who can actually tell me and the only way I can get that information is if heaven explained it to me. That's it. There's no other path. That's the doctrine of revelation. That's the doctrine of revelation. And that's what the book of Job proves. Only God has the answer. You don't. Try for 30 chapters talking a long, long time and being very, very long-winded only to figure out you can't figure it out. And that's the power of the Word of God, that it's very beginning. Why do you need a Bible? Because you don't know, and God has to tell you. That's the point of Job, and it introduces the entire Bible, and it's the only book That has such a formulation and such a strong case for why you even need a book to begin with. And that's what makes the book of the Bible the most unique book. Because everyone else is trying to borrow and justify why you even need a book. And people don't know why you need a book. The Bible has it, though. The Bible has it. And our heart, as a result, in the doctrine of Revelation, needs to be this the Bible's not just nice. It's necessary. It's necessary. I need this. If I don't have this, I die. If I don't have this, my life is destroyed. If I don't have this, my life will fall apart. I need this. When we don't have food or water for a period of time, we feel it. We feel it. Some feel it more acutely than others. Some, it takes longer to feel it than others, but eventually you will feel it. Here's what we need to understand. Time away from the word, you feel it. You feel it. You have to be so convinced. If my mind is not saturated with the truths of this, I will die. I will die. Or I might as well be dead. That's how convinced we need to be because this book gives us truths that we absolutely must know but we can't know on our own. That's what Job reminds us. And that's the doctrine of revelation. Well, God does reveal. That's the amazing thing. By the way, just, I wasn't planning to say this, but that's okay. You didn't know I wasn't planning to say this. So God doesn't have to reveal anything. You do know that, right? We know that, right? He doesn't have to. He can say, yeah, there are truths that you need to know to survive and to thrive and and for your eternity. And I'm not going to tell you. Why? Because I'm God and I don't have to. It's a lot of work, you know, and people are going to criticize this thing. Why bother? Or let's play a game called Guess. It's like a board game that for kids. It's just that the stakes are a lot higher because instead of when you guess wrong, it's just game over, it's eternity over. God could do that. He could do that. In fact, if you think about pagan religion, it's all a guessing game. That's what Deuteronomy 18 points out. God is not like the pagans where you have to use a sign and try to derive things from him or try to read the signs of the sky a certain way and guess what his will is. God is not cruel like that. You don't have to guess things from him. He tells you. That's grace. That's grace. Sometimes in communication, we just wish, well, why don't you just tell me that? God says, I did. I did. You don't have to get, play guessing games with God. He just went ahead and told you. And you could think of it this way. You don't start the conversation with God He already started the conversation here. That's the doctrine of Revelation. So, if anyone's leaving anyone hanging, it's when you don't respond to his word. Because he sent the message, you haven't responded. That's the issue. Now, God sent a message. And the question is how did he send the message? He's already so gracious to reveal things to us, things that we don't know and desperately need. And the question is, how did he do that? And the doctrine of how he did that is called the doctrine of inspiration. We're probably very familiar with it. And the particular articulation of it is called verbal plenary inspiration, those three words. And they really do sum up the nature of inspiration. It is verbal, every word. It is plenary, every single word. And it is inspired all from God. You could put it simply this way. It is God's word, man's word, same word. And you might say, oh, I know that this came from passages like 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. But is this just something from the New Testament? And the answer is no. This is something from the entire Bible, even from the very first book of the Bible, even from the book of Job. If you remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed, yes? Inspired. Here's what Job asks in Job 26 verse 14 and to Job 26 verse 4. He says this, who breathed out of you to his friends? What was the implication is your language inspired? Are you is your counsel, friend, inspired? Is it God breathed? Job even knew from the very beginning how inspiration works. He had the doctrine of inspiration. He even used the language of breathing that is used in Second Timothy 3:16. This isn't a New Testament thing. This is from the very beginning, from the very first book of the Bible. It's carried through the Bible. Exodus chapter four, verses 15 through 16. God says to Moses, "I'm going to put my words in your mouth." And you're going to put your words, which are my words, in Aaron's mouth because you were kind of a coward and didn't want to talk to Pharaoh. And you will be like God to Pharaoh. Why? Because what Moses says is what God says. And what God says is what Moses says. God's words, man's words, same what? Words. Deuteronomy 18. God says about the prophets, I will put my words in their mouth and they will speak the truth. Notice, what they're saying is what God's saying. Why? Because what God said, he put in their mouth. There's no difference between the two. God's words, man's words, same words. This is the very reason why in the scripture, have you noticed it says and uses these things interchangeably. Isaiah said this, well, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the word of Yahweh came to so-and-so, and he said this, why does it use all of those things interchangeably? Because there's God's word, there's man's word, and they're all the what? Same word. There's no distinction between the two. Likewise, on top of introductory formulas, you have the clear attestation, like we said in the New Testament, Second Timothy three sixteen, where you have all Scripture is God breathed. Every single thing they wrote down, all Scripture is exactly the breath and communication of God, even while it is written by man. God's words, man's words, same words. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Man is carried by the spirit, and as such, it says this: He spoke. who's speaking? The person, man's words, but he spoke, next phrase, from God. So it's not just man's words, it's God's words. God's words, man's words, same words. No difference. So when you read the book of Isaiah, who's talking Isaiah and God and God and Isaiah. Yes, that's what's going on. That's the nature of inspiration. And you say, well, okay, I get it. How does that exactly work? Like, how did they exactly experience that? And how did it exactly happen? I don't know. Never happened to me. So I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's profound. It's profound. And it has to happen this way. And this is where we get into borrowing borrowing a little bit. You see, you might say, why does inspiration have to work this way? Because there's a tension between two things and no other religion, no other faith system, no other ideology can actually attain it. Either you have a problem like this, where people want authority, they want divine communication, and when they get divine communication, it's inaccessible. They can't make sense of it. The oracle at Delphi, spoken mysteries. Yeah, it was divine. It was supernatural, but you could never figure it out. And so it was so ambiguous, it was unhelpful or really hurtful. And you have that in other religions as well, where, yeah, it is authoritative. It comes from heaven, but you can't understand it. It makes no sense. Why? Because it's heavenly. It's heavenly. It's all God, no man. That's what's going on there. Or you flip it around. People say, well, I want something that's understandable. I want something that's accessible. Well, then you're going to lose authority. You're going to lose authority because it's coming from man. And man can speak, and man can speak eloquently. It can be very inspirational, but it's not inspired. It's not inspired. And you can have cults that revolve around those kinds of ideologies as well. You can have one or the other. You can have authority, or you can have accessibility. You can't have both. People's theologies, false religions, ideologies can't ever bridge the gap between holding both of those ideas of authority and accessibility in tension. They just can't. But what about biblical inspiration? God's words, man's words, what? Same words. So what do you have? You do have authority. Why? Because it's God's words. It's God's words. And let me just pause here for a second and just make sure that we really understand the authority of the Scriptures based on inspiration and revelation. You see, the Scripture sets up some categories about authority. It talks about special revelation, general revelation, and knowledge. And the way that I kind of make an analogy here is with my college students is orange juice versus sunny delight versus orange soda. This all started because when I was in seminary, I had a roommate who will be anonymous, and, and his girlfriend said, hey, you have a cold, drink vitamin C. And he said, well, how do I get vitamin C? And she goes, just drink orange stuff. Eat orange stuff. And so he bought four cases of orange soda, <laughs> which clearly has zero vitamin C. She came over. She was shocked. She said, Abner, what did you do? And I said, well... I didn't know you asked him to say, to drink vitamin C. I just thought he was really generous, and I like orange soda, so I just started drinking them. And I had no idea. And what it raises is this. We sometimes get categories confused. See, what happens is there are three categories. You have special revelation, like the scriptures. It's called special for a reason, because it tells you specific things about God, and it also changes your life. That's what the Bible does. Every single time you read it, it is God's transforming, convicting work in your life. That is special revelation. And then, though, you have general revelation. And general revelation is general in every single sense of the word general. It is general because it is a general message. All it tells you is that there's a God. That's it. And he's really powerful. And then you have general revelation. It's general in the sense that it must be generic across all creation. It's not specific aspects of science. It's not specific aspects of philosophy or artistry or what you can derive. It's just creation in totality as a whole, in its generality. That's what's giving general revelation. And not only that. It's very general in its effects. Whereas special revelation changes and transforms your life, all general revelation can say is there's a God. And guess what everybody does with that information? Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so special revelation is transformative and powerful and detailed and specific and particular and precise. General revelation is as general as it can be, including in its effect, And then you have knowledge, and knowledge is everything we know. It's not even considered revelation, but here's what people do. They take their knowledge, whether that be about science or history or math or philosophy or whatever it may be, and they elevate it. And they say, well, it's part of creation, and and creation is general revelation. Wait a minute. Remember, creation is general revelation in totality, in its overarching generality. That's why it's called general revelation. And they elevate their specific knowledge to that level. And then they say, oh, general revelation, isn't that like special revelation? Yeah, they have the word revelation in it, but one is special and the other one is general. They're two different things. And that two-step process of elevating knowledge to general revelation and elevating general revelation to special revelation is how people often can say, that's why my science, my knowledge, my understanding is equal to the Bible. Happens all the time. Happens all the time everywhere. But that's like saying orange soda is the same thing as orange juice. Yeah, they both have orange in it. One because it comes from an orange, and the other one because it has that food coloring. But they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing, and we can't confuse them all together. The Bible is from God, and it has authority thereby. But here's what's amazing. The Bible isn't just God's words, it's also what? Man's words. So all that authority, all that amazing special revelation, divine truth, comes perfectly accessible. Why? Because it's man's words in human language, with human expression. God designed inspiration so that you can have God's word and man's word, same word to you so that you can understand everything that he said. He designed it, not just so that he could say, check, I revealed it, but check, I revealed it in such a way that nothing is compromised from what God wanted to say, and nothing is compromised so that you can't understand it. That is what is going on here. This is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. And like I said, no other religion has a model of inspiration that allows both for authority and accessibility. Everyone has to derive it from the Bible, and they do it imperfectly because they're trying to bridge attention, and they can't do it. They can't have the framework for it. Only the Bible does. It's unique. It, it is self-authenticating that way. And let me just make a note about accessibility, and that is this. Accessible doesn't mean easy. In America, that's true. In commercials, they convince you, oh, look, it's so clear because it's easy. Oh, it's so obvious because it's simple. That's just to make you buy a product. That doesn't actually mean that those two things are correlated in real life. Some of you here are scientists and mathematicians, and some of you are not. For those of you who are not, if I gave you a book on calculus, I'd say, is this easy? And you say, No. But could the book be clear? Yes. Some of you in here can cook. I cannot. If you give me a cookbook, you say, Can you make sense of this? I would say, I like Greek and Hebrew. You know, like, this, too, these, there are some things too wonderful for me. (laughs) I can't understand this. Well, it may be hard for me to do that, but does that mean the cookbook wasn't clear? No, the cookbook could be clear. It just takes hard work to get it. Here's our problem. Sometimes people give you a bible and say, "Well, this is supposed to be this is supposed to be clear, right? Do you get it on the first time?" You say, "No, then it's not clear." What? That's not what we're talking about. Something that takes hard work can still be clear. It just means that you takes hard work to get to the clarity, that there's a way to get there. And what God has done is he hasn't hidden his revelation from us. He hasn't obscured it. He hasn't done a bait and switch. It takes hard work, but it's clear, and you can get there. If you do your homework, you can, with certainty and confidence, know that you have the word of God. That's what you have in the Scripture. And it's the only book that can self-authenticate itself in that way. And by the way, its inspiration is so astonishing because it is astonishing. It goes down to every word. And so it's not just authoritative. It's not just accessible. It's truly amazing. It's truly amazing. As probably many of you know, I was privileged to be able to serve on the Legacy Standard Bible Translation Committee And people ask, what did you learn from that time? And there's so many lessons. But I will just say, the one thing I learned is that we don't really understand how far and deep inspiration goes. We don't. When you have the honor of going through every word of Scripture and you start to realize this is said this way because it couldn't be said any other way, Otherwise, this would happen, and that would happen, and this would have those kind of ramifications and and all this kind of stuff. It is said perfectly, and you see that over and over and over and over and over again. We have no idea how far and wide and deep the inspiration of Scripture goes. And let me just give you some examples of this, and they are self-attesting to the scripture's inspiration. For example, sometimes people wonder in Genesis, does the Old Testament affirm polygamy? Have you ever heard that question before? They, you know, People had these sins in the Bible, but does the Bible really get it? As if Genesis 2, where God said, and a man shall take his wife, not wives, and, and as if the Bible just jettisoned that after Genesis 3. It's not the case because of the way that it's worded. In Genesis chapter 4, it says this, Adam knew his wife. We, we get that. And then it says this, Cain knew his wife. We get that. And then it says again, Adam, again, knew his wife. Everyone hear that word, no, yes? But then when Lamech has two wives, it says this, Lamech had two wives. He didn't what? Know them. Why? Why does it break the pattern? Because Moses has already made a point. You can know your wife, have a covenant relationship with her, Yes, that's true. But you can't have that with two women. From the moment that polygamy was introduced in the Bible, it was already what? Condemned. It was condemned by definition. All by the change of one word. The Bible is that profound. It goes down to one word. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. In the book of Mark, chapter 6, it says this, that the 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 Jewish people were sitting on the green grass as God fed the 5,000. Why does the grass have to be green? Is it green? Of course it was green. It's beautiful. But why do you have to mention and emphasize green? Mark doesn't always emphasize colors. The Gospels don't always emphasize colors. So why mention the green grass and that people were laying on it? Does that sound like a passage to you? Psalm 23, it says this. He makes me lie down on the green grass, the green pastures. Same wording. And what's the opening of Psalm 23? It says, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. But Christ is the one who is causing the people to lay down on the green grass in Mark. So make the connection. Yahweh is the shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. Christ is who? Yahweh. We just proved the deity of Christ through a color. Green should be your favorite color. The Bible is so precise, it goes down to an individual word. Let me just give you some other examples. If you see here, it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. Did you guys catch the change? Why is it so different between the two? Why is there this break of pattern, neither nor, neither nor, and then and? Why is that happening? And the answer is simple. On one hand, the reason that there's a break in pattern is because the way that there is no male and female is different than Jew and Greek and slave and free. There's a difference between them. Slave and free, they are supposed to be one in Christ, Jew and Greek, that's all washed away. Male and female, that's a different kind of resolution there. And you might say, well, what is the kind of resolution in male and female? Where have you heard the phrase male and female before? Genesis chapter 1, he made them what? Male and female. What Paul is saying is, yes, with Jews and Greek in the church, they're one. And there's no distinction between the two. Slave and free, yeah, they're one. No distinction between the two. But male and female, they are one. But there is a distinction. There's a break in pattern. And the distinction goes back to where? Genesis chapter 1. You know, sometimes people in certain agendas use these verses to argue that there is no biological difference at all between male and female. Actually, this verse argues the direct opposite. Because if you looked at the change of conjunction, you would have caught that. By the way, did you notice it says male and female? Why? Because that goes to Genesis 1, yes? Think about Romans 1, famous passage about homosexuality and Often it says in translations, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged the natural function of women and men with men and women with women. Notice the Legacy Standard Bible says females, males, males with males. Why? Because the Greek word is male and female. The same words that are translated in the Old Testament for God made them male and female. Why is this wrong? Because Paul already told you why it was wrong, and he anchored it back in Genesis chapter one, a conjunction, every single word it matters. in Acts 19 verse sixteen, it says this, "And the man in whom was an evil spirit, this is another illustration from the New Testament, as Paul is ministering in a city." leaped on them and subdued all of them and utterly prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is that evil spirit attacking. But notice what happens at the end in the, this town of Ephesus. It says this, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and what? Prevailing. The demon prevailed, but what really prevails in the end? God's word. In fact, you could think of it this way. How did God's word prevail in that city? God even used the demon to do it. He used the demon to prevail so that in the end, God's word would even prevail more, would even prevail more. That's the precision that you have. Here's another one in Acts and Luke, because Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Very discouraging verse, potentially. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he was delivering them into prison. Do you see that? People might say, oh, that's that's no good, and I know Saul will get saved, but that, that just demonstrates persecution, and that can be very disheartening. But listen to this. There's a reason why consistency of translation matters, and the very words that God wrote in his word matters precisely. What did Jesus say before? But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and to what? Prisons. What do you learn from Acts 8.3? People did exactly what Jesus said they would do. People did exactly what Jesus said they would do. Sometimes in persecution, we think life is out of control. We think that everything has gone bad, that everything has gone haywire. What is Luke's point? His point is things have not gone out of control. Things have not gone haywire. Things have not gone out of God's plan. They are exactly the way Christ said And when we are suffering and in trial, we need to remember this. What God said would happen, happened. And that means this. Everything is according to plan. So it's fine. It's fine. We need to remember that. This is just something astonishing to me. Here is in the book of Job, just talking about precision of wording. Job, having been confronted with theophany and in the midst of his suffering, he says this as he renounces himself and declares that God is right. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Yeah, I I knew some things in the past. It was distance. It was only limited, limited to the sense of hearing. But here was what he said. But now my eyes see you. He doesn't just say, I see you. That would be fine. He says, my eyes see you Why does he say it that way? Why does he have that phrasing? Because in Job 19, verses 25 through 27, what did he say earlier? I know that my Redeemer, what? Lives. And at last he will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I shall behold myself, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. On one hand, when God appeared to Job, when God appeared to Job, did God answer his questions about why he was suffering? Did God tell him, I had, a, I had a purpose in heaven and these are all the reasons happening? No, God did not reveal that to Job. But on the other hand, when Job saw God, all of his questions were answered because he saw in a trailer version in an anticipatory fashion, what he hoped for here in Job 19, he got a taste of that in advance and he knew everything and every question and every issue and every doubt will be resolved by that God. Why? Because he said, what I know in the end, my eyes will see. My eyes have seen. They've seen it already. He had that. And that's why individual words and phrases they matter. They matter. God's word is good to every word because it's God's words, man's words, same words, every single word. It's authoritative. It's amazing. It's accessible. And so it's clear and astounding. And that's what you have in the word of God. That's inspiration. That's how God designed this book to be. And there is no book that can authenticate it that way, and there is certainly no book that is this good to this degree. Speaking of being so amazing, this gets into the issue of translation. This is kind of a spin-off of inspiration, translation and derived inspiration. <clears throat> Sometimes we might wonder, if we really are thinking about it, is reading a translation okay? Most of you think, yeah, you haven't thought twice about it, which is good. My job is to tell you why it's good that you never had to think twice about it. Because not every religion or ideology believes that. For example, Islam, the only legitimate Quran is Arabic. That's it. If you have a translation of it, it's illegitimate. It does not actually help you. Everything that they do must be done in Arabic for it to be truly binding. If it is not that, it doesn't work. Why? Because they don't have the doctrine of derived inspiration like we do. They haven't they it just wasn't formulated, it didn't authenticate itself. Why is why is there a justification though for translation? It is because fundamentally God wanted the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, and every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship Christ. And so if every nation, tribe, and tongue can worship Christ, then you can translate the Bible into different tongues or languages. And on top of that, think about this. The New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And the New Testament, though, quotes from the Old Testament, does it not? And when it does, does Jesus ever say, now I'm quoting from the Old Testament in Greek, but this is obviously a translation, so it's not really authoritative or binding. Just got to say that first for you all. You just got to go back to the Hebrew and read it. And, okay, now let's talk about what the text says as I'm translating it, but it's not a legitimate, you know, and he just gets caught. There's nothing like that. He just says it, and it's authoritative. Why? Because insofar as the translation matches the original it has derived inspiration. It is concordant with God's purpose to have every nation, tribe, and tongue in obedience to his Son. All of that is for his glory, and therefore it is enacted and demonstrated by precedent in the New Testament. Translation is not just tolerable, it is commanded. It is commanded by Scripture. It is endorsed by Scripture because it is part of capturing the world to Christ. That is what is going on in the justification for translation. And like I said, this is unique. This is unique because the faiths of this world so-called, the false religions of this world, more accurately termed, they haven't been able to put this together. If this is the divine book that they have whatever it may be, how do you get it into another language? How do you justify that? How does that work? They don't have a solution for that. Only the Bible does. Only the Bible does. The Bible has its own sophistication that authenticates itself, and as a result, it has what no other religion has, and every other religion tries to do what the Bible does. They have translations of things all over the place. They just don't know why they can do them. They don't know why they can do them. They have to have them for marketing purposes, but they don't know why they can do them. And so the Bible stands independent. It stands completely as the original. Everyone's trying to copy off of it, but it is uncopyable. And in that way, let me just say this, brothers and sisters, if you've just thought about inspiration and how detailed it is, a translation is a tool and you have to understand that. And so the tool is only good as far as it goes. That's what we have to understand by principle. A tool is only good as far as it can go. It has a specific purpose. And so some translations, they're good on the overall thought of a scripture. That's as far as they go. Other translations can be good to a general precision about individual words. That's handy too. But the best translations, at least for study, and the most exhaustive ones, are going to be the ones that try to go after every single word. Why? Because the word of God is inspired down to the what? Word. We don't need to have translation wars. We just need to understand translations are different tools in a tool belt and what they are good for and how far they can go. And that's what is going on here. By the way, that's part of the reason why, like I showed in previous slides, the LSB emphasized consistency so much so that you could see basically what is in English, what we are seeing in Greek and Hebrew. No difference. In fact, at some points I was telling the guys, I can read the LSB and almost retrograde the translation back to the original. And just say, yeah, I think it probably would say this in Greek or Hebrew. And 94% of the time, be right. That is, that's what we were aiming for. That it can't just go back and forth like that. We're trying to build confidence as much as possible. And you say, well, what about the 6% you couldn't get? It's like, hey, we just, you know, sanctification, got to get better. So, um, and that's it. We just have, we always need to improve. We always need to improve. Yeah. So that's the doctrine of inspiration. Now it's inerrancy, inerrancy. If you think about the doctrine of inerrancy, it's worded negatively. It's not errant. And you may say, why do you have to emphasize inerrancy? That's that's weird. Why would you define something negatively as opposed to positively? Because historically speaking, everyone wanted to say the Bible's true. No one comes out and says, I believe it's a lie, and I'm a Christian. That that just doesn't make any sense. But what they would say is, I believe it's true, but I don't believe it's true in this sense. I don't believe it's true in some claims of its historicity. I don't believe it's true in the sense that it's universal. I don't believe it's true, and they would always set up a qualification. And inerrancy is saying, hey, if you say it's not true in a certain sense, you are basically saying the Bible has an error. And inerrancy is attacking that, that mentality to continually try to insert or allow for or entertain a different notion of truth and allow a certain notion of error to creep into the scripture. This is what inerrancy is rebutting. That's why it's in the negative. You could simply put it this way the doctrine of inerrancy is reminding you about actually not just the nature of the Bible of the nature of the truth. What is truth? Is truth just a message? Is truth just some good, helpful ideas? Is truth just a spiritual reality? Or is truth a correspondence with every single thing in this world, a concordance and a harmony and a defining of every single facet of what is actual, both natural and supernatural? If it's the latter, that's what inerrancy is reminding us. Inerrancy is reminding us that everything in this book, it's assertions about history, it's assertions about science, it's assertions about God, it's assertions about theology, all of that is equally true. And there is no error mixed in. There is no, well, it's true in this sense, but not in this sense. Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. It's true in every single sense that it claims. It is 100% true. And that is unique about the Bible. Here's a shocking statement. The Bible can be, keyword, can, could be disproven. You say, what? No, the Bible's true. It's, it, it's true. Amen, it's true. But it could be what? Disproven. Why? Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Paul says what? We're the worst of all people, are we not? It, the Bible makes assertions that can be verified and not verified. The Bible makes claims that can be proven or disproven. Is there a David? Is there an Abraham? Is there an Israel? Is there an Egypt? The Bible makes those kinds of claims, and that's unique. You see, most religions, they don't make those kind of claims. They say, well, so-and-so had a dream. How do you prove somebody had a dream or not dream? It's not possible. You can't say, well, uh let's go back in time, problem one. Problem two, and let's go back in their head. Can't do that. And let's really see that they had a dream. Can't do that. Can't do that. Somebody had a vision. Somebody had a feeling. Somebody wrote a book that we don't have anymore. (laughs) I don't know how you're going to really verify that or not verify that. That's impossible. You know what the Bible says? Is there a Jesus? Is there an Israel? Is there a Jerusalem? Was there a second temple? Is there a Herod? Is there an Abraham? Is there... The Valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath. Are there Philistines? Are there Hittites? Are there Assyrians? Are there Babylonians? Is there a Daniel? Those kinds of questions. And you can demonstrate that. See, the Bible, in a way, it doesn't, but in a way, goes out on a limb and says, we're so true, we can prove that in verifiable statements, unlike anybody else. And you can test us if you really wanted to. And we'll always come out on top. Because we're the truth. Because we're the truth. That's unique. People want to copy that, but they really don't. Because when you start to say things like, um, well, we found a book, but it got lost and destroyed, and it was made out of gold, but, but we don't really know that because we didn't really see it. And, but an angel gave it to us, and, but the, that sighting was an unverified thing. I mean, you just can't win. And it's like, is there an Israel? Yeah, you can fly there to this very day. <laughs> oh, is there Greece? Yes. Is there Turkey? Yes. You know, you can, no problems. We have no problems. It's the uniqueness of the nature of Scripture. And let me just give you some illustrations, key illustrations. The Bible is going to assert things, and they are historically true, whether you can verify them or not at the moment. They are true, period. Period. That's the nature of Scripture. It is historically true in everything. It is exactly its fabric and nature. Absolutely, amen and amen. And so these are just illustrations of that. By the way, you might say, well, why hasn't archaeology found everything out about the Bible and everything? Because archaeology is limited. You say, what? Really? Yeah. Let's pretend you were Shark Tank, and I'm an archaeologist, and I'm pitching something to you. And I'm going to come at it kind of snarky. And I say, hey, I got an idea for you. Yeah, you like the Bible, kind of. Okay, uh, you like David and Goliath? Yes, I'm going to find that. Oh, good, are you, how are you going to do that? I'm going to dig a hole in the ground. And you are going to, you know where to dig? No, kind of. I'm going to dig lots of holes in the ground, but I'm kind of limited by politics and such, so I can only limit it a certain amount. How much is it going to cost you to dig a hole in the ground? Well, after we have to pay all the, the fees to everybody a million dollars so you're asking me for a million dollars to hire a bunch of people to dig holes in the ground yes and and what is the likelihood of success that you will find something immediately i don't know do you see the problem what person what venture capital is going to be like yes sign me up for that archaeologists have a difficult time securing funding and so, and sometimes you can't dig certain places, like on the Temple Mountain, where there is a lot of good stuff. You can't dig there. Why? Because that's how World War III happens. <laughs> so you can't dig there. Just because you haven't found it yet doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. Just be patient. Just be patient. But these are illustrations let me give you some. This is the Cyrus cylinder. Do you remember Ezra chapter one has a message from Cyrus? He wrote parallel messages like this. I have to keep going fast. And I like this next one, so that's why I'm going this one. This is the wall of Jericho. Everyone see this right here? This is a pot in the wall of Jericho. And you say, why does that matter? It's a pot filled with grain. They did a spectrometry analysis and they discovered that it was full of grain. And Here's why all of this is important. Oh, by the way, the reason why it looks burned and broken is because it is burned and broken on purpose. And and there's a reason for it. This is in the layer that happened at the Battle of Jericho. This is the wall of Jericho. This is the layer that happened chronologically at the Battle of Jericho. And why does it matter that the pot is filled with grain? Now think about this with me. A pot full of grain, when you're normally in a siege How do sieges work? Are they short or are they long? They're long because the goal is to starve out a people, yes? So for this to be burned up and destroyed, the siege was not long. It was what? Short, which doesn't make a lot of sense. That's odd. That sticks out to us. And then on top of that, when would you be able to normally fill up a pot full of grain? In America, you go to Ralph's or Sprouts or whatever, but you don't do that in any other time period of history, you have to wait till the season of harvest, do you not? And so now we can actually do some detective work and we pinpoint this. During the time of Jericho's destruction, we know the exact month that this happened because it's when the harvest happened, yes? And we know actually from the Bible when the battle of Jericho took place, it took place shortly after Passover, which is when the first harvest happens. This matches in chronology. This matches in event historiography. This matches in exact descriptions because Jericho is one of the cities they burn to the what? To the ground? This matches everything that we have about Jericho. I like that pot. <laughs> now, here's another one. This is a guy named Erastus. That's his name. He he got a placard outside of Corinth. You say, well, who cares about Erastus? He's in the Bible. He's in the book of Romans, Romans 16, 23. Paul says, hey, greetings from Erastus. And then we found the guy. He's a real guy. Paul wasn't just writing up imaginary friends. It's not like Facebook where you just make up things. (laughs) This is a real guy. This is a real guy. It's amazing. Here's the level of historicity and reality of the scripture. Every single place, every single name, every single person, real. Real. That level of precision. Speaking of real people, you got uh, this thing. You say, what is this? This is called the Tel Dan Steely, and it attests to the reality of David. You can see it here, Beit David. That means house of David. test to the truthfulness of David. And and not only do you have archaeological evidence, you have prophecies fulfilled. This is crucial. God even sets up for this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And amazing prophecies. The book of Nahum has a prophecy that Nineveh will be destroyed by a flood. You know how rare that is? For a city to be destroyed by a flood? And guess what? Nineveh was what? Destroyed by a flood. Exactly like the text says. Isaiah 45 Says this, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed. Hundreds of years before Cyrus ever showed up on scene, God said, Cyrus is the guy's name that will deliver Israel from exile. Do you know how hard that is? That would be like me saying, Guess the name of the president 200 years from now, and you can't use the word John. (laughs) That would be, those are the kinds of odds we're talking about. God says, Look, I don't, even, I, don't, I don't even just predict that Israel will be set free. I know the guy who will do it. How else do you explain that besides divine inspiration? You have the prophecies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, which predict Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. And remember, Daniel, he didn't know about anything except Babylon. He didn't know about Medo-Persia until it happened later, and then he certainly didn't know about Greece or Rome. He couldn't do that. It all happened. It all happened exactly that way. It was talking about Alexander the Great's death before the guy was ever born and all that would happen to him. And then on top of that, you have messianic predictions like the virgin birth, that he's born in Bethlehem. He's in the line of David. He opens the eyes of the blind, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, pierced for us, cut off after 483 years following the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem according to Daniel 9. How do you guess that? How do you have that kind of accuracy? That's astounding. This is God's words, man's words, Same word. This is all. This is all truth. It's truth. It's spectacular truth. Let's talk then about the nature of truth. When the Bible has so much history and it's so many claims, it's a reminder of this. This isn't just hypothetical sovereignty of God. This isn't just hypothetical principles that pertain to a spiritual universe out there. This is God saying, this is what happens in your life right now, in this world, what has been, what will be, and therefore what is. This is the nature of truth. And that means the Bible is totally sufficient. Because the Bible isn't the description of truth. The Bible's the definer of truth. When you have prophecy that tells you what's going to happen, then the Bible is actually decreeing what will be. That's how certain the Bible is. It's not just sure that its description is accurate, it made the description before it ever happened. That is the nature of Scripture. And so sometimes people wonder, I don't know if these truths are really relevant. No, no, no. They're the very definition of what is. That's why sin hurts. Have you ever thought about that? Why, why does sin hurt? Why are there consequences for sin? Because you've gone against reality. And when you go against reality, it hurts. You know, when, you're, when a kid is bouncing up and down on a bed and they have a towel tied to their neck pretending they're Superman and you're saying, hey, look, you, you can't fly. It's by definition. You can't, don't try. And then in your heart, your sinful heart, you just kind of hope they do to learn the hard way. <laughs> and then they jump and they fly for half a second and then they pancake why? Because you can't fight reality. When you do, that, it hurts. Because you can't win against reality. This is reality. We come up with all kinds of things like Job's friends, that think like, go, well, we can be as sophisticated, and the Bible didn't account for this, and that. No, this is reality. And when you go against this, it hurts. Why? Because you can't win against reality. And this is reality. This isn't just the description of truth. It's the definition of it. It's the definition of it. And we cling to this because it is, this is the way it is. The Bible is all sufficient. Well, we got 10 minutes to cover two more topics, which are super important. So let's do it. I think we have 10 more minutes. Either that or, well, hypothetically, we just go to, you know, central church um, time. (laughs) But here we are. We have canonicity. Here's the question. Here you have the word of God. You have the word of God, which is God's gracious revelation of what we don't know. Inspired such that it has authority and accessibility. Every word of it is amazing. And inerrancy, which reminds us that this is the definition of reality. This is not just something out there and God revealing trivial information. This is everything to us. And the question is, do you have it all? Do you have it all? That's the question. The question is of canonicity. And when people talk about the issue of canon, they have all these kinds of things. Oh, I guess canon was made kind of after the Bible was put together and people kind of selected what was gathered. And at this point, people are saying, well, look, if that's the case, then the Bible is dependent on man to put it together and the Bible is dependent on church councils. And, and man, then the Bible is a man-made book in that way. How does this work? Let me clear all this up. Let me clear up all this. We did not make up canon. We did not make up canon. The Bible came as canonical. That's what you have to understand. The Bible came as canonical. If you say, wait, are you like, how does that work? In life, there are other canons. They're not the best of canons, but they're canons. For example, Star Wars has a canon. Whatever George Lucas says is part of Star Wars is Star Wars, whether you like it or not. If you don't like Jar Jar Binks, it doesn't matter. He's canon. You can't say, well, in the higher critical school of consciousness, I think this was a mistake, and, and I, don't, I, I refute the George Lucas influence. You know, like, no, it doesn't work. It is canon. That's it. The Bible comes as canon. The Bible comes as canon. And it demonstrates itself. It, it asserts itself that way. And let me just give you micro seams and macro seams to illustrate it for you. The Bible stitches itself together. Let me give you an example. After Moses wrote the first five books and you have Deuteronomy, he passes on, uh, just actually turn to Joshua chapter one. And in Joshua chapter one, what does the text say? It says this, then after the death of who? Moses. And what does Joshua tell the people? This book of the law shall not depart from your what? Mouth. What book of the law? The book of the law that we just talked about in the first five books. What happens in Joshua? Joshua says Everything you just read, canon, and I'm building on that. That's what happens. He's micro-seeming things together. They are building on top of it. It comes canonical. Turn with me to Judges. Turn with me to Judges chapter one. What does the opening of Judges chapter one say? After the death of who? Joshua. So what does it say? Oh, everything that you heard about Joshua, that's what? That's canon. And guess what? The book of Judges is what? Building on it. Turn with me to Ruth one. Turn with me to Ruth 1. I think you're going to start seeing a pattern here. What does Ruth 1 say? In the days that the judges judged. Alluding to what book? The book of Judges. And it's saying, everything you just heard about Judges? Yeah. And guess what? I'm building on that. What's the last word of the book of Ruth? What's the last word of the book of Ruth? David. And what's the next book after Ruth? 1 Samuel, which talks about who? David, do you start to see how everything is stitching itself together? This happens not only in the Old Testament. This happens in the New Testament. Peter refers to Paul. Luke and Paul refer to each other. What you have is all of this interseeming, interlocking kind of realities that are happening one after the other. There are micro seams for every book. And if you're like, oh, what about the book of Hebrews? There's a mystery author. Think about this. Hebrews 4 says this. The word of God is sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. Over and over, the book of Hebrews says the word of God. The word, the word, the word, referring to inspired canonical scripture, does it not? Hebrews' last words say this. Thank you for listening to this word of exhortation. What word did he just use there? Word. Word. What did he say his own book was? Scripture. He already told you that. It already came as canonical. By the way, that's not just in the book of Hebrews, that's in the book of John. Have you not heard over and over in the gospel of John and Johannine writings, it is written, it is written, just as it is written, yes? And what does John say? I wrote these things, yes? Do you remember that? I wrote these things that you may know that you have eternal life, yes? What did he just say by saying I wrote? He said, you heard these things written because they're scripture. I am writing. Why? Because I'm writing the same thing, scripture. I'm on that level. They did this all the time. They had this all the time. It's micro seams. Now, you might say, well, then all we need to know as books are interlocking is when this starts and when this stops, right? That's all we have to know now. So then you can move from micro to what? Macro. And in macro seams, we know the on and off button, and it's a very simple on and off button. It's the word prophecy. Because isn't that what the Bible is? It's God's revelation. It's God's prophetic activity. And so the macro seems come in, and the macro seems say, here, the on button, God says to Moses in Deuteronomy, there will be prophets like you. Okay, so we know there's going to be more prophets. The on button has been what? Turned on, yes? And then, in Malachi, it says this. Malachi says this. Well, uh there is coming a prophet like Elijah, yes? Now, that means between the time of Malachi and the time of Elijah, there are no more prophets. There's one to come, yeah? But between those two times, there's no other prophets, which is why the Old Testament canon what? Closes, because you put the pause button on what? Prophecy, does this make sense to everybody? And that also, though, shows that the Old Testament had to anticipate a what? A New Testament. Why? Because there's another prophet to come. One who will be in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. And then he comes. John the Baptist. And then he comes introducing Jesus, who's the greatest prophet of all. That's why Hebrews 1 says that there were many prophets and spoke in many ways. But God now speaks to us in his son. And then in the book of Revelation, it says this. No one can add to the words of this prophecy. Why? Because God has stopped, then, the activity of prophecy. The only way you could add to the words of the book of Revelation is if you had what kind of words? Prophetic words. And God says, you can't add any more, which means what? Prophetic words have ceased. And at that moment, then, you have micro seams and macro seams. The Bible built its own canon. We didn't have to do anything. All we did was just recognize what was already there. It came as canonical. It was intentionally and immediately and interlocking as canonical. No other book can establish its own canonicity like the Bible can over such a long period of time. It's amazing. But here's here's something to be remembered. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says this. You will not add or subtract from this word. Deuteronomy already knew about canon. It was making canon. But there was a point in it. It wasn't just, hey, let's win a war with a cult. I mean, that's good. But there was a reason. It says this. You will not add or subtract from this word in order that you will keep all that I am commanding you. You know why canon matters? This is what we're accountable to. Every word of it is inspired, given to us as a gift. Every word we're accountable to. That's why canon matters. This is what God holds us to. This is his gift for us. Well, here's the final thing. Did God preserve this canon of inspired, revealed, inerrant truth? And the answer is, yes, he did. He did. And there's no theology of preservation that every copy is going to be perfect, but there is definitely divine providence. I know this graphic is small, uh, but you can find this on the internet all over the place, and hopefully this presentation will be uploaded for you to peruse through but what you have is all these ancient writers and they have two copies of their work, 10 copies. The Iliad has 643 copies. We're like, yeah. And then the New Testament has 5,600. That's a lot more. That's a lot more. It has a lot more certainty. It has the best of all ancient manuscript preservation. Is that saying much? It is. It is preserved by the date. You say, how close was... A copy that we have with the original. Oldest manuscript for the New Testament, relatively speaking, is what we call P52, which is about 100 A.D. You say, why does that matter? Because it's recording something and copying something that John wrote in 90 A.D. It's only 10 years after. Might be the first copy of that text. That's amazing. And you might say, well, what about Hebrew ancient manuscripts? Remember, back in those days, Bibles are expensive. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it would cost about a quarter of a million dollars to produce the book of Romans. Quarter million dollars. It's about one million dollars to produce the Torah. So are you just going to throw it away when it gets a little old? Like, uh, I mean, if you do that, if you have the free, please see me afterwards and let's talk. Um, uh, So, but these are expensive. So they're preserved. They're preserved for hundreds of years. So when you have something in, say, 300 A.D., it probably was copied in 100 A.D. If you have something in the B.C. period, it was probably copied hundreds of years before that. You can push back the dates all over the place. And so we have date and geographical spread of things all over the place and a variety of things. For example, you have papyri, which are ancient paper you can see that here you can have things on a silver amulet jewelry can preserve the bible we know this you have jewelry that has bible verses on it and you don't even just have jewelry that has bible verses on it. you have bulls you say they have bulls back then they have it on look they were like oriental trading company they had they had preserved bible through all kinds of different ways and Here's what you have with all of that, and it's amazing. With all of those artifactual evidence, with all those manuscripts, they even had commentaries back then that preserved the Bible. Here's what you have a massive level of agreements on a lot of ancient documents. And yes, were there variations between the two? Yes, the average variation, uh, the average agreement is 94%, with a variation rate of 6%. And you say, is that good? I had a buddy who's at Cambridge. He's not a believer, and he told me, look, if you have 83% agreement between manuscripts, you have original. You have original. He's like, that's why you evangelicals are weird, because you're just like so offended and hurt that there's 6% and crushed by it. It's like, statistically speaking, 83% is original. And I said, well, it's not just that we have 6% differentiation and we're crushed by it, but we have all these compensating factors, and we just want to really get it so it's 100%. He's like, You guys are crazy. But that's because we believe every word is inspired. And let me just say this. We know how even words were spelled in the Bible. Because there wasn't a standard dictionary at the time. People had different ways to spell things. We know even how each word was spelled. Which means you don't just know which words are in the Scripture. You know what? Every single letter. That's the kind of preservation we're talking about. This is overwhelming agreement. How much of God's word do we have? Every bit of it. What did God say? Every jot and tittle, yes? We have every jot and tittle. We have every jot and tittle. That's what we have. Here is your Bible. Here is the Bible. It's the truth you don't know, but you need to know. And only God can tell you. Here's the Bible. It's the truth conveyed such that God's word is man's word, full of authority and amazing precision, and yet accessible at the same time. Here is the Bible. It is the absolute truth, not just some foreign idea or hypothetical spiritual reality. It is exactly reality, the very definition of it, and you need it all sufficient. Here is the Bible. Every single thing God wanted you to have, you have it. Here is the Bible, every single word of it preserved. Here is your Bible. And people labor to make sure you would have one. It is the one book that rules them all. There is no other religion, no other ideology, no other book that can actually authenticate itself the way the Bible says. It, everything borrows from the Bible, and the Bible borrows from no one. That means it is the one book that rules them all, and there is no word like this word. And you want to know fundamentally what you do then in light of this? It's just found in 2 Peter 1.19. Turn there very quickly. Here's here's what you do. Peter says, this word is more sure than anything you've experienced. This word is more sure than what you know you know. Because it's the definer of reality, not the experiencer of reality. So what do you do? Which you do well to pay attention like a lamp shining in the dark place. Here's what you have to understand. We're in the dark. We're just groping around, hoping to survive. And the only light you have is this book. You cling to it. And here's what you recognize. How far will this take you? Until the day, it says in chapter 1, verse 19, until the day dawns. Everything will one day be made right. History will culminate, and this book will get you there. And it's not just that. It's that Christ will win. Christ will win. It says this, and the morning star will rise. That's Christ. That's Christ. You want to get there? You want to see Christ? You want to make it that far? It'll get you there, and it won't just get you there. It'll get you there. Why? Because he will arise where? What's the last phrase? In your hearts. It won't just get people there. It won't just accomplish those purposes and promises and everything about the glory of Christ. It'll get you there. It'll get you there. It'll make sure your heart is right so that you will end up with him. Cling to the book. It's the only thing that'll get you home. It's the only thing that'll get you home. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this book. And may it truly be that we understand how amazing this special revelation is, life-transforming, life-giving, mind-renewing, glorifying you and your Son, all-sufficient, and it will get us home. So may we cling to it with all of our heart as you have written it and work through it. In your name we pray, amen.